Good day and welcome to the CRE Finance Council Member Update Conference Call. Today's conference is being recorded. At this time, I would like to turn the conference over to Lisa Pendergast. Please go ahead, ma'am. Thank you, Samantha. Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, This is Lisa Krepsi. Uh, Welcome to our member update, and thank you very much for uh, joining. I know everyone's busy. Um, So we have a good roster with us uh, today, and uh, those from Krepsi include Christina Zausner, who is head of uh, industry and policy, Marty Hsu, head of government relations, David McCarthy, who is our director of industry and policy, Raj Adesani, who is our director of research, and then Jeff Strunk, who is a partner at lobbying firm Forbes Tate. Um, There's certainly a good amount um, going on in the markets, going on in D.C., and so we thought now would be a very good time to kind of take a break, get you up to date on what it is that we've been focused on. The areas we are going to focus on today's call would be GSE reform, um, the Volcker Rule and other regulatory relief, the LIBOR transition effort, um, CREPSI's new Board of Governors sentiment index, and then we save the best for last, all the kind of interesting, juicy stuff um, as it relates to the midterms and, and importantly, the implications of those midterm results on um, the CRE sector. So with that, I'm going to ask Christina Zausner to kick it off um, discussing um, GSE reform. Christina? Thank you, Lisa, and good afternoon. Um, So to start off and set the stage, we think that 2019 will be a big year for GSE reform and its twin issue, housing affordability. So we have some momentum here in D.C. Secretary Mnuchin has blessed the idea Certain key congressional members have returned, even despite the fact that we lost four of 25 members on the Senate Banking Committee and 13 of 60 members on the House Financial Services Committee. Besides the Federal Housing Finance Agency, other regulators are also signaling interest in some form of privatization for the GSEs. In particular, the Fed Chair, Jerome Powell, has been public about the fact that he believes they are the last big systemic risk to address from the crisis. So what's different this time? There's something of a now or never attitude. So starting with the administration and the new FHFA director, what might that person do? So um, we believe that Watt will be asked to leave shortly after uh, his term ends in January and that the new director either acting or the nominee, uh, will be somebody from industry. So we're not making any predictions about who that person might be, but it is likely that person will have some level of industry experience. So what might that new director do in 2019? The most important thing is that person will make a decision on the scorecard. And there are three elements of the scorecard that were previewed, uh, I think it was Tuesday of this week. And uh, so this was put out by Watt. In Watt's scorecard for 2019, the caps for the uh, the GSEs would remain at $35 billion per firm, so no change slated for 2019. And he marginally tightened the criteria for green loans. Lastly, he announced a transition to a new data-driven affordability methodology. So the FHFA also has a capital rule out for comment, and that is another measure critical for the transition from conservatorship. The the requirements would apply to the GSEs formally once they had exited, but in order to be ready to transition, 
they would need time to adjust to the requirements operationally and financially beforehand. I'm not planning in on diving in on the details here, but if you're interested in that proposal, feel free to reach out to us. For now, we here at Crestia are focusing on the nominee, and then when we see who that person is, we'll be better able to gauge what that person's appetite for change might be in the future. I think David may take a betting pool on that. I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> yeah. So in any case, switching to the legislative side, um, despite polarization in Congress, I think everybody can agree on, on that, uh, we believe there are reasons that both parties will want to give GSE reform a real go, whether or not you believe in, in pushing the GSEs out of conservatorship or whether or not you believe in addressing housing affordability. We think that there's going to be some impetus for coming together. Now, having said that, that doesn't mean that you're not going to see a number of different kinds of messaging bills. And Elizabeth Warren dropped a, uh, a draft of her bill in September. We're not sure if she'll pick it up in the 116th Congress, but it was interesting from the standpoint that it probably represents an extreme poll in favor of housing affordability, and it called for $500 billion in uh, funds through HUD. So um, on the more bipartisan front, there were two bills previewed in 2018 that are of note. The first was a leaked draft from Corker Warner, and then the second one was the bipartisan housing finance reform bill that was co-sponsored by outgoing members Hensarlane and Delaney and also remaining member Jim Himes. And what both of these bills had in common was that they indicated that, there, that single family and multifamily should be dealt with separately and that they both put forward their own ideas of what a guarantee should look like. So it's not clear that these themes will be carried forward in 2019 in bipartisan measures, but it is something to watch for. And it does appear that over the, I think, four or five years we've been seeing real GSE reform attempts, that they've been narrowing around a smaller and smaller set of ideas. Um, so what is Crespi doing and how can you participate? You'll have several opportunities to interact next year as we go forward and, and we try to um, uh, react to what's moving through the FHFA and what's moving through legislation. But the first thing that you can do is watch out for a survey that's going to be coming your way. This is something that affects every single member, either directly or directly. It's important. And this is our way of quantifying what the membership wants. And uh, so we're looking for your participation. I think one, one more note on the GSEs, um, the legislation that was introduced previously. So in January, the calendar basically is, is, is fresh. So there is no pending legislation. Everything that's been formally introduced will have to be reintroduced in the new Congress. Um, which is important to note because we have Corker Warner, one of those is gone, Henserling, Delaney, both of those guys are gone. So we have to find a new champion. And I'll get to this in a minute on the committee chairs, but we'll have a new slate of leadership uh, on the relevant committees as well. So, you know, D.C. being D.C., everyone wants to have their own personal fingerprints on whatever's introduced. So it's probably not a fair bet 
that we'll see the same exact bills reintroduced in January. I think that there'll be some tinkering around the edges or perhaps even a wholesale rewrite. It's, it's very hard to say because we don't know who the chairmen are going to be yet. So now I'm going to pass it over to David, and he's going to take on Volcker Rule and other regulatory relief. Thank you, Christina. And uh, for those of you following along at home, this morning we sent out a link to some slides that uh, you can use to reference. We're not going through them slide by slide, but they could be helpful if you want to come back or want to dive a little bit more into a topic that we're discussing. So if you are following along, I'll be starting on slide six. And I'm going to just cover some of the regulatory reform initiatives that we've seen both from Congress and the regulators this year. So the biggest news that kind of came out this year, which you may be familiar with, was in May the President signed the Economic Growth and Regulatory Relief Consumer Protection Act bill, which uh, also known as S-2155 or the Bank Regulatory Bill, which covered a lot of bank regulation and financial services regulation and targeting regulatory relief. Now, this was largely targeted towards community banks. However, there were some provisions that affected many of our members, uh, including on Volcker uh, and HVCRE, high volatility commercial real estate. And most recently, uh, the designation of certain regional banks um, and smaller banks as systemically important financial institutions, which has important implications for capital and stress testing regimes. So that's kind of the broad overview of that. And then I'm going to cover kind of three areas uh, specifically that we've been focused on here um, among uh, many of our policy initiatives. So first, uh, the Volcker Rule, which uh, generally speaking, the rule prohibits proprietary trading and restricts covered fund investments for banking institutions. Uh, this is generally reviled by the industry because it's considered to be a failed policy due to its complexity, significantly higher costs for capital for secondary trading desks, and the resulting sharply reduced market liquidity. And that's where we've heard from our members where this hurts the most, the compliance costs and the impact on secondary market liquidity for CMBS. And the regulators have been attuned to this. There's been kind of a groundswell over the past several years, even under Obama-appointed regulators, that this needed to be fixed. It was too complex, and the regulators realized that. So in June, they put out a proposal to fix the regulation, and uh, it, was, it was kind of a mixed bag. There were some things that the industry has said would be helpful, including the calculation of reasonable expected near-term demand, uh, but also the definition of trading account, there were some problems there. So Crefty submitted a letter, um, which is available on our website, uh, that we can get into if, you, if anyone has questions. Uh, but generally, it took some steps in the right direction, but it's not all there yet. And the regulators recognize there's still more work to be done. The comment period has closed, so we're going to be awaiting further action and possibly a final rule and whether that looks the same as the proposal is yet to be seen, because I think the regulators intended to help alleviate these burdens. However, the industry has very clearly said they're not quite there yet. So moving on, uh, on to slide eight, if you're following along, the high volatility commercial real estate rule is a capital rule that has uh, been a very big interest to both our bank members and non-bank members. Just briefly, if you're not familiar with this, this capital rule applies a 150% risk weight to acquisition, development, and construction loans that don't meet certain criteria. 
And this was, uh, went into effect in January 2015 and has uh, been a source of consternation for banks and borrowers even because of the complex requirements around either exempting loans from the capital charges uh, or identifying loans that would be subject to the capital charges. Congress took notice of this, and in the bill passed in May, 25, in May 2018, there was specific language set to um, change and revise this law. And I'm not going to get into the very specifics of that because likely if you are attuned to HVCRE, you may know that, and you'll know that CREFC is currently uh, working with its HVCRE working group on addressing some of these issues. But generally, the law sought to clarify what loans HBCRE applied to, clarified what exemptions and, uh, were applicable and some of the technicalities of those exemptions, and also grandfathered loans made before January 2015. So considering all of those, we do expect that this will provide some capital relief to banks and also make it easier to implement from a compliance standpoint. Uh, just to be clear, this wasn't a rollback of the rule. There were some kind of targeted changes here on this, and the regulators are now in a process of implementing that statute. Although it's effective, they're implementing that statute, and currently there's an open rulemaking on that. But it's, it's very similar to what the law was when it was passed. They're just kind of interpreting a few things there. And uh, lastly, on the regulatory reform front, uh, we want to draw your attention to the Home Mortgage Disclosure Act. This is also known as HMDA. Uh, just a brief background on HMDA, and this is there's a bit more information on slide 13. HMDA, you may know from the single-family world because it basically was designed in the 1970s to be a reporting tool so that banks could show uh, their applications for home loans and their granting of home loans as a uh, tool to combat racial redlining and other discriminatory practices. Now, the law has evolved since the 70s, and most recently, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau in 2015 changed the regulation to uh, scope in multifamily loans, which is where our membership comes in. And in doing that, they also lower the threshold. So before where there may have been a 500 or 1,000 loan threshold uh, or an asset threshold if it was a non-bank, now if a bank or non-bank makes at least 25 loans in the preceding year, this includes multifamily loans, they could be subject to reporting under HMDA. Now, what does that mean? That means both collecting information on applications and loans made and reporting that information to the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. And our members have raised this as an issue because uh, while many banks have compliance systems for HMDA, many of our non-bank members who do not dabble in the single-family space are, are seeing this as a potential compliance burden because the threshold is so low. Additionally, CREFC has noted, and our members have gone before the CFPB to say, that the nature of multifamily and single-family, the business of making those loans is fundamentally different. You know, for one from one standpoint, you're making a loan generally to a business entity or a non-natural person in the multifamily space. So the type of data you're collecting is very different. And then also how that data could be used and whether it's even relevant, uh, there's some serious questions about that. So just to be clear, uh, this is something we're continuing to work on. It was not addressed in the bank regulatory bill. There was some narrow relief on HMDA 
but it does not apply to non-banks, and even the relief it addressed did not address this problem with the multifamily. So we at CREPC are continuing to advocate towards the CFPB for an exemption for single-family rental and multifamily business-to-business loans so that our members will not be caught up in the compliance burdens with very little regulatory upside. So there's more to come on HMDA, and again, if you want to get involved or more information on any of these, please contact me, Christina, Marty, or anybody on our team, and we'd be happy to get you involved. And with that, that's all for regulatory right now, and I'll kick it over to you, Lisa, for LIBOR transition. Great. Thanks. That was great, David. So we're going to talk a little bit about LIBOR here. I look at it as a sort of an effort in preparation. I've heard a number of folks, and I think starting off, including myself, that LIBOR transition was more of a Y2K event. However, I would argue that, you know, I was back around in Y2K. What you found was it was not a colossal disaster, especially because the U.S. and the world really prepared well and in advance of that occurring. So it became a non-event, and that's really the goal here is to make this transition a non-event. So what do we know about LIBOR today? July 2017, Andrew Bailey at the U.K. Financial Conduct Authority announced that he wouldn't compel panel banks to quote LIBOR to the range of the LIBOR currencies after 21, so just under four years or so to prepare. The trouble with LIBOR, it's based mainly on expert judgment rather than actual underlying transactions, and there are serious concerns over the reliability and the robustness of the LIBORs. In the U.S., approximately $200 trillion in USD LIBOR contracts outstanding are based on $1 billion of daily interbank USD LIBOR trading, so that's a ratio of 20,000 to 1. Um, So we create really a huge reliance on a a very small and fragile and potentially shrinking benchmark market. So uh, at this point, we introduced the Fed's Alternative Reference Rate Committee. Um, In 2014, uh, the the Board of Governors at the Fed and uh, the FRB New York convened the Alternative Reference Rate Committee. Um, It really, its goal was to identify best practices for alternative reference rates to create contract robustness to develop an, op- an adoption plan and an implementation plan and a timeline. Um, they also, one of their key goals was to come up with an alternate rate. Um, the rate that they chose was the secured overnight funding rate. Um, that came about in mid-2017, again, introduced by the Fed. It is a broad measure of the cost of borrowing cash overnight collateralized by Treasury securities. Um, it's comprised specifically of general collateral plus bilateral Treasury repurchase agreements. Um, and that is an extremely large liquid market with about $800 billion trading on a daily basis. Thus far, we've seen about $17 billion of SOFR debt issuance um, as of month-end October. It's come from a handful of banks, life companies, and Fannie Mae. Um, SOFR futures were launched on May 7th. Um, we're seeing new highs in the number of open interest holders and open interest contracts, and that's a good thing. Um, it does suggest that, you know, we're seeing the development and acceptance of SOFR um, is certainly growing, although I think there is a significantly more to do um, to get to a point where we could move from SOFR to a, to a term structure, which we'll get to in a minute. And that's really what are the differences between SOFR and LIBOR um, that need to be addressed. First is that SOFR is an overnight rate, so it lacks what we, you know, sorely need, which is a term structure, um, and that needs to be de- developed. Also, SOFR is a risk-free rate versus LIBOR, which has a bank credit component. 
and really therein lies the rub on two fronts. Um, so the new SOFR rate would certainly be a, a benchmark rate um, that's based on a term, a credit adjustment spread that adjusts for that difference between in credit, between LIBOR and SOFR, mm -hmm. and then eventually for us our loan spread. Um, so as to CREPSI's role in this transition, um, the Fed is encouraging those involved in, in LIBOR-based cash market products to start incorporating newer language that references SOFR as an alternate rate. Um, the, the ARC wants to deliver recommendations for addressing risks in the contract language, for an orderly transition on a voluntary basis, and any actions that would facilitate these, these, these transitions. Right now, CRE contract language varies uh, really from, you know, either a balance sheet lender, even within the CMBS market, I've seen various languages. Um, and really what we're seeing mostly in the CMBS market is the following, is that it is, you take your last all-in LIBOR rate, you subtract out um, the index, and from there you get a new loan spread. Um, and, and, and while that's, you know, I think it's a solid and straightforward um, solution, it's simple, um, it is a spot rate, and so there is the potential using that spot rate to introduce trans uh, value transfer over time. Um, we are starting to see, you know, more robust language, but we still sometimes see simple things like using, not using the term SOFA, but rather staying with an alternate rate. And I would argue some of that is due to the fact that right now, SOFA at standalone, as I said, does not have a term structure. So you're referring to a rate that really doesn't help you at this point. Um, in July 2018, ARC issued guiding principles for fallback contract language. And at that time, they established all of these cash market working groups. One was floating rate notes, another syndicated business loans, securitizations, and consumer loans. And really, the goal was to develop triggers for moving from LIBOR to SOFR. So when do you, what has to happen in the market for you to feel comfortable that you're moving from LIBOR to SOFR? And then what that fallback rate waterfall language might look like, given that day one, we're probably not going to be dealing with a, a term structure. And also, what would that credit spread adjustment strategy be in terms of trying to make up for the difference between SOFR being risk-free and LIBOR being credit-based um, on banks? So thus far, the ARC has issued consultations to the industry for the floating rate notes and syndicated loan sectors. Um, that went out in late September. Um, it was due 45 days later. They've just extended the, that uh, consultation period to November 26th. The Securitization Working Group, which is obviously most pertinent to this conversation, um, is chaired by myself um, and Cyber Berkey at SVIG. Um, it's been a really sound good collaboration. We have weekly calls with the Fed and, the, and, and a good member, large number of members of both organizations. Meredith Coffey from LSTA just joined us. Um, she finished up her business loans um, consultation and decided it was easier to join us um, in terms of her CRE or her corporate CLOs. So the tent has grown as to as to what we're doing, and and that does present challenges because there's a obviously a, a, a high level of different asset classes that are incorporated into this consultation. Um, our goal is to complete the the consultation by December 5th when we would present it to the ARC in person in person meeting um, here in New York City. Um, hopefully they will approve it, and then it will go out to uh, to comment for 45 days or so. Um, I suspect, like the other consultations, we will get more time to do that. So very quickly, and then I want to turn it over to, uh, to, to Raj, um, what we have right now are seven triggers um, that would allow you to move from LIBOR to SOFR. 
the first is sort of industry-wide or, or across all of these markets, um, is it some date set by a public statement by a benchmark administrator um, that it will cease to quote LIBOR on some date? Um, or other benchmark-related bodies that could make that statement as well. And those are pretty hard triggers. And then we have what we call pre-cessation triggers. So pre-LIBOR cessation triggers would be, let's assume that for you haven't seen a quote from LIBOR for five consecutive business days, um, and there's no comments regarding that, that would be a trigger. We look back, and LIBOR has never not been published. So during World War II, during 9-11, you had a, a LIBOR number um, available to you. This, this, the other pre-cessation triggers would be insufficient submissions by the panel banks. Currently, there are 16 banks quoting. Um, any any number lower than five would trigger this uh, insufficient submissions policy, and it even could be some other number that is determined. Um, and then there's some statement by a benchmark administrator that the benchmark no longer is representative um, and therefore may no longer be used. Now, what is pertinent to this conversation is that there are two triggers that we really need your feedback for. Um, the first is the asset replacement percentage trigger. Um, this really addresses basis risk. Should underlying loans and the securities not convert to the same replacement rate at the same time? It could apply to some managed CRE CLOs where you go in with a uh, with LIBOR loans, but as you continue to add loans, they are SOFR-based. So to the point where you have more SOFA loans in the pool, 50% or greater, um, then that, that gives you sort of cover to trigger those other loans in the pool to a, to a SOFA um, base, uh, benchmark. Now, again, this is somewhat related to CMBS and, and CRE. Um, I think it also has uh, a lot of uses outside and other securitization markets. Um, so even if we were to adopt this, it doesn't necessarily apply to us. Um, and that's okay. No one, this is all voluntary um, and something to keep in mind. So that's one sort of securitization trigger. The other is something called the 60-day trigger. And what that says is any date within a 60-day period prior to the cessation date, um, we're going to allow the securitization market to pick a date um, and, and move your assets and your liabilities. Now, this is one that we have discussed at great length with the Fed. They are not happy with the, the sort of the flexibility that we're building in here. Um, and so the question is, and the whole idea would be to address the operational issues that we have that some of these other working groups don't have. Uh, and to give you cover should something go wrong, you know, to fix it before LIBOR goes away. Um, and, and again, significant pushback there. Um, if anyone on the call can call and provide me with some specific detail as to why um, this would be advantageous to you other than just that it would be, it would, you know, it would be nice to have. Um, that may work too, but right now the Fed's really looking for some, some really smoking gun as to why we should leave this in. So any kind of feedback there would be great. And then just to quickly focus, uh, to, to finish up here, there is something called a proposed replacement rate waterfall, and that would start with what we hope we start and end with, which is a term SOFR rate and a credit spread adjustment. If term doesn't exist, you'd go to compounded SOFA um, or spot rate um, if that was not doable on the compounded basis or some, some rate that was recommended by a government body. In this case, it would be the ARC um, or some rate after that that was recommended by ISDA. Um, and that could be something like OBFR or an FOMC rate. Um, finally, there's something called the sponsor selected rate. And, and frankly, that doesn't work for us because you would need to get um, investor consent um, on that particular um, option, and that's not something that's necessarily doable for us. 
So you, at the end, you could end up with last quoted LIBOR, which is then basically a fixed rate instrument. Um, what we're suggesting, if you get to that point, go back up to the waterfall at some point and see if term SOFR actually has been developed and that you can use that and then work your way down that waterfall. <coughs> there are also discussions on how to calculate that credit spread waterfall, but I, I, I've gone on for too long already. Suffice it to say, we really would, we need, would like to hear from um, both investors in the CMBS market, issuers, servicers in particular, and anyone else on the balance sheet side. Um, while this is a securitization working group, um, we can and can speak to the folks um, that are covering these areas um, under the Fed's um, arc. So with that, I'm going to turn it over to Raj, who is going to talk about our new sentiment index. Uh, hi, everyone. If, uh, if everyone could turn to slide 31 of the presentation or 32 of the PDF. Um, so th this is a quarterly survey given to our board of directors that, uh, that started in the fourth quarter of 2017. Uh, we've now done this for four quarters, um, and you'll see the overall index results shown on that slide. Um, our plan is to have a press release that um, we hope to release in the next week or two uh, with commentary on the, the contributing factors. Now, now, if you look at the index on slide 31, you'll, you'll see that there was a drop-off um, from the summer survey to the fall survey. Um, and when you have time, you can go through the following slides, which will provide some color on the areas where, um, where our board changed their expectations. Uh, but generally speaking, you know, the, this, I guess, the malaise is due to a number of factors versus, say, one area we can pinpoint. Um, you know, some examples, we, we are now in the ninth year uh, of the real estate recovery, and prices are 26% above the prior peak. And, and so with properties priced to perfection, it, it's just making it more challenging to invest. Um, Rate increases by the Fed. Uh, they've raised rates three times in 2018 with one more uh, expected. Um, so th this is just putting additional pr uh, pr pressure on values. Um, and, and another important uh, factor is the, just the surplus of capital uh, combined with the shortage of product, um, which is leading to some pretty intense comp competition right now for loans. Um, so, you know, at the same time, you're seeing sales volume decreasing, which is adding to the reduced demand for loans. Um, and in speaking of the competition, you, you, we're just seeing a ton of uh, dry powder waiting on the sidelines. Um, private debt funds have about $60 billion right now to invest. Um, and this group increased loan volume 40% uh, last year. Uh, in addition, um, there are over 100 funds right now looking for uh, capital for, for, the, for this real estate debt strategy, um, seeking a total of $40 billion. Now, you take that, and then at the same time, you have banks and life companies and, and the other traditional lenders coming back into the market. So, uh, as you can imagine, this is just creating a, a, a pretty intense competitive landscape. And, and we're seeing that now in, in the lending numbers where you're seeing six of the eight major, major lenders, each capturing more than 10% market share in the first half of 2018. Uh, and the story here is uh, the mortgage rates and debt funds who have uh, significantly increased their shares and just cutting into volumes for, for CMBS. 
especially and other traditional lenders. Um, so I guess with that, you know, please review the results of the underlying questions uh, if interested and, you know, feel free to reach out to us with a with any commentary or uh, any other questions you have. Um, and it's going to be very interesting to see how our board answers in the, the survey next month. Um, and lastly, yeah, just again, look, look out for our press release um, in the next week or so. Okay, um, Marty, I think it's, uh, you're up. <coughs> okay, well, I have help today. Thank you, um, Jeff Strunk, my, my partner in crime. Um, Jeff and I went through a lot together, especially on tax reform, so um, it's a good man to have next to you. So uh, yesterday, sorry, Tuesday was an interesting day. You know, we had a thesis early on in 2018 about this election. We just, David and I talk about this often, and, and Jeff to some extent too. You know, what's the overarching theme? What, what's, 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 the, what's the prevailing wind in 2018? And, and for us, we, there was no prevailing wind. There was no... Um, massive red or blue tide. We, we just basically kind of sized races up on an individual basis. I mean, how else do you explain Manchin and John Tester winning their respective states? Those are both solid, solid Trump country states, and both of them won against formidable opponents. Um, the Republicans had good candidates fielded in both of those races, and the Democrats just flat out won. So it's, just, it's an odd year and it wasn't uh it wasn't quite as easy to diagnose as a red tide or a blue tide uh the current makeup as you probably have heard on the news uh roughly 226 democrats right now 198 republicans there's about a dozen or so races undecided um that are coming down to the wire when all said and done democrats should wind up with about 230-ish seats uh well north of the majority of 218 so um, they're already kind of moving on to the uh, leadership uh, transition um, for 28 for, with the new Congress will be in January 2019. So what's on store for commercial real estate? Well, first of all, the committee changes uh, will be drastic. Um, coming from Mr. Henserling from Texas and the House Financial Services Committee, uh, probably to Maxine Waters is going to be a whiplash. Um, you know, one is ultra orthodox conservative, and she is a liberal's liberal, right? Uh, so I, I think that it's going to be a, quite a difference. Um, as far as agendas, uh, Maxine has not been uh, very vocal about what she wants to do. I know she wants to look into some of the big banks. Deutsche Bank comes to mind uh, for the relations to Trump administration um, uh, business-wise. And, you know, one thing that she has alluded to recently that is somewhat encouraging, I think, is that she would like to revisit the Community Reinvestment Act. Um, she has the support of the Black Caucus on that endeavor, and a number of Republicans actually want to do that as well. So depending on the ranking member, and Jeff, I just heard a rumor that uh, Patrick McHenry is likely to take it. Have, have, you, have you heard that too? He's actually, um, I'm missing the call right now, but I spoke to him last night. He's announcing to his downtown community that he is running for ranking member, literally as we speak right now. Well, what timing? What timing? And just for you uh, and, on the and, call. And, uh, and, 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 and unopposed, too. So. I'm, I'm sorry? And also unopposed. Okay, unopposed. Right, right. Um, I think they cleared the deck for McHenry on that. I think it was his to lose, or to hit to his for the taking. Um, so for those of you who don't know the, the name Patrick McHenry, um, not quite a household name, uh, but an animated little guy, 
uh, fond of bow ties, and he really is a big proponent of, of uh, reining in Basel. Um, McHenry has written numerous letters on that topic um, supporting our positions. So we are ecstatic uh, should he be the ranking member, uh, the head Republican on the committee, and uh, that would bode well, I think, for um, the overall working relationships between Democrats and Republicans. McHenry is not a bomb thrower. He's a very thoughtful man. Um, he likes order, and he likes uh, collegiality. So um, that, for instance, would be a net positive, I think. Um, to, to the extent that Maxine can work a deal with anyone, I think that McHenry would probably be high at the list. Um, so what does that mean? Um, before we go to the Senate for a minute, well, let's, let's, let's talk about what things have to happen, right? We, Christina mentioned GSE reform. Um, I would imagine Mrs. Waters will put her stamp on whatever GSE bill comes to light. Um, that assumes that the, the subcommittee chairman, uh, currently Emmanuel Cleaver, um, doesn't move around and he comes back next year uh, in the housing subcommittee. So the, the GSE obviously will be boiling over uh, at some point in 2019, but before then we have terrorism risk insurance uh, reauthorized in 2020. We have flood insurance, which expires the end of November. Um, on flood insurance, we expect a short-term punt into the um, next Congress, and then it'll be the next Congress's problem to do a long-term reauthorization. Um, lots of oversight of the Trump administration. So I think Maxine has already alluded to uh, tax returns and uh, scrutiny of business dealings. So we expect that will be um, a large part of the oversight uh, bandwidth for next year. Um, over in the Senate, there's a little more complicated formula as to who's going to be leading the committee. The Senate Banking Committee is who we deal with most over there. Depending on another committee, Senate Finance Committee, um, and it sounds like we'll hear it today or next week early that uh, Chairman Chuck Grassley, who just confirmed Brett Kavanaugh, um, will be moving over to the Finance Committee, which would then secure the current chairman's role at banking, which is Mike Crapo, um, a big proponent of commercial real estate, um, has family ties to our industry. So fantastic gentleman, um, has been a good chairman, and he's, he's, he's proven worthy of, of, of bipartisan deal-making. David mentioned the 2155 bill that uh, Crapo championed through with the help of uh, a dozen or so Democrats. That was quite an accomplishment. So we're pleased that he's coming back next year, um, and you know the, the, the increase in the Senate majority uh, to right around 53 when it's all said and done, our guess, um, should solidify the the ability to get some of these things done um, on flood insurance, on terrorism risk insurance. And as far as GSE prospects, you know, Crapo has introduced GSE returns or reforms before. Uh, I think he needs a new dance partner, though. So to the extent that he has a Democrat willing to work with him, uh, Mark Warner comes to mind. Um, that I would not uh, rule that out of a possibility um, for the first quarter of next year. At least I have it in the hey, series hey, of hearings. Hey, 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 Marty, sorry to interrupt. I, I had a, I dropped off for some reason. I'm back on. I'm not sure if you're asking me or not. I apologize. Okay, no problem. Um, we're just talking about the banking committee chairmanship. Um, so Bye. basically, I think we're in, we're we're in very good hands with Mike Crapo. Uh, we assume it's going to be Sherrod Brown, the lead Democrat, and uh, those two. I think you know. There's a deal to be made in somewhere in there on the flood insurance, hopefully terrorism risk insurance, and um, some oversight of uh, banking regula regulators. 
Um, as far as the CRA provisions, the Community Reinvestment Act, we have not heard much in the way of the Senate uh, engagement on that issue, but I suspect if the House kicks them over something, um, they will consider it in due course. We've had a lot of interest about opportunity zones. Um, those are largely kind of outside the congressional purview at this point. Most of the activity there now is a Treasury Department uh, with rulemakings and implementation. Um, for those of you who uh, have had questions on the opportunity zones, please reach out to me. We've got a memo prepared by outside counsel that gives you kind of the nuts and bolts of what's happening today and the upcoming deadline for the proposed rules. Um, I'd like to get someone's questions um, in queue shortly. I don't, what, what time is uh, we got uh, a few minutes left? So, operator uh, Samantha, can you um, tell folks how to get in queue for the uh, for the questions? Yes, sir. Thank you. If you would like to ask a question, please signal by pressing star one on your telephone keypad. If you are using a speakerphone, please make sure your mute function is turned off to allow your signal to reach our equipment. Again, press star okay. one. To to ask a question. Thanks, Samantha. So while you guys queue up, um, a couple of things that I want to touch on about the election. Um, there's a couple of uh, things that have to happen. Obviously, we have to have a leadership election. So uh, Mrs. Pelosi has indicated her her willingness uh, and eagerness to run for Speaker of the House again. Democrats look to have the same slate as they did last time. They were in the majority with um, Steny Hoyer from Maryland the number two spot, and Mr. Clyborne from South Carolina in the number three spot. Um, that's not quite the change that the millennials were hoping for, I think, but, you know, this this could be a two-year kind of deal. Jeff, do you have any comment on the Democrat leadership elections? Uh, I mean, only that uh, you can't really – there's obviously a sense of um, people want some change because the, you know, Congress and the Democratic voters, the Democratic leadership, not just from a – um, you know, Pelosi and Hoyer and Clyburn also at a chairman level are extremely older than the rest of their caucus. Uh, but you can't um, beat someone with no one, and no one's really stepped forward as a viable alternative to Pelosi. So even though many of these newer members um, in their campaigns refused to say they would not vote for a first speaker, um, they do have the um, – I guess they, they do have the ability to fall in line in the end, and I expect that to happen and her to be reelected uh, as speaker. And I think that to Marty's point, one of those ways is she's going to say, you know, I have a timeline here. I'm going to create the air apparent and get some things done, then I'm going to move on. And I guess probably her only way to path forward. Yeah, I can, I can very easily see that happening. I think that she has to develop the bench to succeed uh, the current roster of leadership. Um, and that just isn't there at the moment. So I think that while they while they groom the next generation of leadership, I think we'll get at least two years of the of, of the old regime uh, coming back. Uh, Samantha, we have anybody in queue for questions? Yes, sir. We have Dan Olson with KeyBank. Hello, Mr. Hey, Marty. Uh, how you doing, buddy? Hey, uh, at a recent uh, agency conference, we heard that there's more likely to be agency reform through administrative action versus legislative action. Do you have any thoughts on that? Uh, I think Christina is itching to, to, to answer that question. <laughs> Hi, Dan. How are you? Um, so I think that's pretty fair, right? So there's a lot that the FHFA can do. They can, they can really change the business model for the agencies in a lot of different ways. The scorecard is, you know, for the past five years, been the way that they modify the the footprint. 
and, you know, in his outgoing move, uh, Watt basically um, allowed things to remain status quo except for a methodological change, which we don't know much about around affordability. But having said that, the director of the FHFA has pretty unfettered responsibilities and ability to do what he or she wants going forward. Um, I, given what we've seen in terms of of uh, the financial um, agency heads that have been appointed by the Trump administration, personally, this is just my belief, I don't think that we're looking at an FHFA director in the future who's going to swing wide one way or the other. They're pretty moderate. I think they're very um, practical so far. Mnuchin, Odding, um, and some of the other people who have been appointed. But still, they have the ability to do much more without um, dealing with all the headwinds that you might find in Congress. So um, what Congress has that the FHFA cannot do is they have the right to uh, grant the GSEs after conservatorship some kind of a guarantee either to the entities or to the securities or both. So, um, and again, that's been one of the pieces of the bipartisan measures which seems to have become consistent. Henserling is out. He was the author of the PATH Act, which envisioned a post-conservatorship world for the GSEs without any kind of guarantee. Um, so whether or not somebody's going to fill his shoes in going forward, we don't know. But what it seems is that there's been a, a tighter and tighter circle around fewer and fewer modifications to the current business plan, both under what? Uh, administratively and in bipartisan legislation in particular. I don't know if that Thanks. answers your question, but... Yeah. Oh, thank you. Okay. Uh, Samantha, anybody else? Thank you. Again, at this time, if you would like to ask a question, please press star 1 now. Okay. While you're while you're queuing up, if you uh, want to ask questions, um, you can always email me and David after the phone call if, if you don't want to share it with with everyone. But I do want to call your attention to chart uh, on number 39, um, slide number 39. Uh, I want to highlight this not because of the the, the rather harsh lines in in the text. Um, so we have a, a couple of scratch offs there. Bob Corker, my old boss, God rest him. Uh, Dean Heller, uh, Heidi Heitkamp, and Joe Donnelly. What do they have in common? Um, the sad thing is we've lost four good moderate uh, senators on the banking committee. So that means that, that it's going to be more polarized, um, and we assume that the replacements for both uh, Republicans and Democrats will probably be more on the extreme part of, you know, uh, on, the, on the spectrum. So um, it's, it's lamentable that the, the committee has lost so many good moderates uh, this time. Um, likewise, with the House Financial Services Committee on slide 41, uh, we lost 15 members on the committee. Now, why is it important? Um, well, you know, the, the litmus test for, for partisanship notwithstanding, um, that's 15 new people who probably don't have a familiarity with our, with our product. So there's a long learning curve, as you all know, um, to educate members and their staff, um, about who we are, what we do, the nuances between multifamily and single family, 
um, you know, what is securitization, uh, you know, in, in the multifamily world and the in, in the uh, in the conduit world. I mean, these are these are you know pretty tough issues to tackle. Um, and when we have you know roughly a quarter of the committee turning over, um, that that's 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 tough. It's tough to pull that off. So. We'll be educating a lot of the new staff and the new members uh, in, in the first quarter of next year. Um, hopefully, in advance of GSE reform, we'll get these folks up to speed and get them curious about as, as to what we do and, and who we are and, and how our markets work. Um, so I, I call your attention to that just 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 to point out that you know, uh, regrettable we, we lost some good moderates and then we have a long learning curve. Um, on the banking committee. The finance committee, as I mentioned earlier, um, we lost the chairman there, so we expect Mr. Grassley, number two, to move up to chairman. Um, and our friend Mike Crapo is still number two. He'll be, he'll be number two at that point. Um, and he'll keep his banking um, uh, chairmanship, uh, which is good for us, which is very good for us. So, so, so any more questions? Real quick? Yes, please. Mark, can I add to that real quick? So I just yeah. one thing with that is that um, with, with all these new members, it also creates opportunities. Um, because they're not hard in their positioning, they don't really understand yet. So I think that, you know, it's provides an opportunity in the fact that we can get them up to speed and maybe mold them to our thinking and our understanding, not have hardened views that have been there for a long time. And Mr. Henserling, um, on the Republican side, ran that committee with a little bit of an iron fist. And I think, as Marty mentioned earlier, Mr. McHenry will be a little bit more um, pragmatic. So from that but it's an opportunity for us um, as well if you're just trying to educate and meet the new members. That's a very good point. Um, and and, and, and uh, the political events that we attend um, uh, on behalf of you all, the membership, um, are, are, good, are good forums for that. But, you know, we also have a series in New York uh, of open houses, and we're trying to invite uh, some key players this year to come to uh, go to Crefsey's headquarters, sit down with you guys. And, you know, sit down at a small, you know, 10-person table and just have a good, healthy exchange of ideas, right? These people, the congressional uh, members who have come in and, and through our doors really, really enjoy those events because it's, number one, it's educational. And, number two, it, it humanizes uh, an industry that may not be familiar with. And, you know, they meet the big players in our world and they think, oh, okay, they're very intelligent they're, they're, and, they're, and they're highly engaged um, and they are, they, they're trying to do the right thing. And I think that that goes a long way. So to the extent you see an invitation come across your email uh, for one of our open houses, um, please consider uh, joining us for that because the, the, those are very informative. And I think, and for you guys, it gives you kind of a, a firsthand seat as to how these politicians think and how their learning process works. Um, sometimes it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a little bit, um, well, it just, it, it, makes them, it makes them approachable, I think, in a way that typically politicians are not. Um, Samantha, anyone, anyone else queued up? I'm not showing any more questions in the queue at this time. Okay. Uh, well, I'll just wrap it up here, uh, and I'll give it back to you, Jeff. But I think, you know, a couple of warnings for the, for the coming year. Um, we mentioned oversight uh, is going to be key in the House. Don't forget, the House Financial Services Committee does have subpoena power, and I expect that Ms. Waters will use the subpoena power that she has, or at least the threat of subpoena, um, to get what she needs to, to have oversight and, and, and she'll, she'll say accountability for the Trump White House. Um, there's a lot of headline risk. Uh, Christine and I went around this week about that. You know, I think that 
I think the, the, the real risk here is not so much his legislation passing, because when you have divided government like this, um, the odds of having de novo legislation, she says, um, you know, organically come through the House and the Senate and be signed into law by um, an unwilling president is, is probably is probably a pretty tough mountain to climb. But I think that you know, by, by the fact that they can have hearings and Maxine can subpoena folks, um, there is a large degree of headline risk. And I think the headline risk sometimes is is, is more costly than the actual legislative risk. So I would just I would just caution folks that you know you're going to hear a lot of things that sound really bad, but I don't think that they're going to translate into actual you know legislation that's uh, that's 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 harmful. So actually, I have a question for you and Jeff on that front. Um, are there reasons why the Democrats would be restrained in in um, investigating and subpoenaing? You know, could it have implications for them in the 2020 election? Yep. Jeff, do you want to take a stab at that? Yeah, so I think that, you know, all my conversations I've had with, um, through the start of this transition with Democrats is that they want to take a more modest um, kind of running in this time as opposed to the last time they were in control. And the reason for that is that, you know, going to 2020 is that all these members that took the house are a lot of them are in um red states and red districts and they're the majority makers and so i think that um they will be mindful of that i think that the problem is is that sometimes um the leadership can only do so much to show these people the road to success and outside influences get involved and one of the things i would be concerned about is the uh, campaign for 2000, or, you know, 2020 has already started, um, and you have a lot of Senate Democrats that are running for president, Elizabeth Warren being one of them, and she plays the outside in-game, and um, as opposed to, you know, she's, I don't think she's ever passed anything in the Senate of substance, but what she does is she uses the outside game to move these people one way or another. So even though leadership's intention may be not to engage in some of these things, the pressure may bubble up regardless. And I think that's just something you need to be mindful of. Yeah. Uh, just to build on Christina's point, uh, the 2020 Senate map is almost the opposite of 2018. Um, Republicans are defending 22 seats, um, like the Democrats this year. Democrats were defending 25, I believe, of 33, 34. Um, and only two of those uh, 2020 um, Republicans are in Clinton states. That's Colorado and Maine. Um, so it's it's you know as, as good as this year if it was for Republicans, it's going to be a really uphill climb for them in 2020. Um, and I, I expect uh, Leader McConnell to govern accordingly um, to make sure his folks are positioned well for the for the next election, uh, where it will be a presidential year, um, and turnout will probably be much higher. Um, Samantha, if there's anyone else in queue, we'll, we'll put them on. If not, we can we can um, wrap it up here. Okay. Yes, sir. I'm showing we have one other party in queue. We have James and Mario. Great. Okay. Yeah, we have James and Mario with PNC Bank. Hey, hey Marty. Good job as good job as always, buddy. Um, what about Peter King? He's kind of senior there on the committee. Is he moving to another committee? You say McHenry's taking that the uh, ranking job. In the house. Yeah, Jeff is is, is is King termed out on intelligence? Well, intelligence is not term; it's appointed. 
Um, okay. I fully expect Mr. King to stay on the Energy Services Committee. Yeah, I, I think I think he is technically. I think he may be senior to McCar- uh, McHenry, but I think that mm-hmm. the, the the understanding amongst the caucus was that McHenry had the seat if he wanted it, and I think that, that there I was see. competition for the there, there was competition for the ranking member spot amongst Luke Demeyer and Sean Duffy and Bill Heisinga, Um but that was all. I think those were all contingent on McHenry taking a pass, and it doesn't. Mm-hmm. Jeff just told you that um, it doesn't sound like he's taking a pass. It's probably the best option for him. He can help the party and fundraise um, like a, a like a villain, and uh, <laughs> and frankly, there, there's no there's no leadership spot for him anymore, right? He was deputy whip of the House Republican Caucus. That spot doesn't exist he? in the minority. So right, so right. He, he's t- he's trading in his black uh, SUV for you know his staff car. <laughs> <laughs> okay, thanks. Yeah. Okay, uh, Samantha, are we are we are we done with the questions? Yes, sir. There's no further questions at this time. Okay, uh, I want to thank you all for your attention. And before I say um, hand it back to Lisa to wrap it up, I just want to urge you guys to reach out to David, myself, Christina, um, with emails and calls. And we love hearing from you guys. And uh, you always have thoughtful questions, and we appreciate that. So with that, I'll, I'll conclude and uh, hand it over to Lisa. Yeah, thanks, Marty. Great job. Um, and, and Jeff, thank you very much. Um, so that's it for today, folks. The idea would we'll, we'll probably do another of these calls um, soon after the conference. We'll, we'll give a little bit of a recap um, and then talk about what's going forward for 19. Um, and, uh, you know, if, if there's something that you'd like us to do um, different than how we did this today, we'd love your feedback on that as well. We want to try to inform um, I also would remind you that the weekly goes out every Friday afternoon, um, which gives you uh, great updates from our, our GR department as well for, as well as from Raj on the research front. So thank you very much for joining today, and uh, talk to you all soon. Thank you. Thank you all. Thank you, thank you ladies and gentlemen. This concludes today's teleconference. You may now disconnect.